Well, how are you guys? All oh, right, that's awesome. I'm not going to make you do it again, but please. Okay? Um, anyway, I'm Sid Druin. Uh, you guys probably haven't met me. I just stood up in a cafeteria. That's about it. Um, I am married to a woman uh, for seven and a half years named Tear. Uh, it's not spelled like a teardrop. It's not spelled like the layers, tear. No, it's T-E-R-E. I don't know. It's a southern nickname. Uh, and then I have twin babies, 16-month-olds, William and Carol. So a little bit about me. Um, are we ready for a shameless plug? Ready? Okay. I work for this thing called Reform University Fellowship, uh, RUF. It's a campus ministry at New Mexico State. So if you're interested in doing going to school at New Mexico State, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, love you to check us out. Um, also, if you, we're also at 130 or so campuses across the nation. Um, not too many uh, in New Mexico, unfortunately. But if you're going out of state, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about RUF as well. Real briefly, RUF uh, has two things. We, we, live on the, we work on the campus. Um, our model is that Jesus didn't ask us to come to heaven, but came down to us. And so our goal is to go to the college campus where students live and meet them where they are. So we meet on the student union. Uh, I spend a lot of my time in the union, in the cafeteria, in the, in the coffee place, the Barnes & Noble on the, on the campus. So anyway, um, we exist to love the campus and its students. And we do that by reaching them with Christ and equipping them to serve each other, the church, and Jesus. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. What are we doing that with? And we're going to talk a lot about this, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me summarize it for you in one sentence which is bold, perhaps stupid. Um, here it is. Ready? Jesus' goodness for our badness for free. Jesus' goodness for our badness for free. That's what the gospel is all about. And that's what we're trying to exist uh, out of in RUF. Anyway, shameless plugs over. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sitting through that. Um, let me keep going. So, uh, I'm really honored and delighted to be here. Can I? Yeah. Yes. Um, anyway, I'm not used to being up on a stage, so I feel like I'm kind of like towering over you guys, but here we go. Um, I'm, I'm honored and, to, and delighted to be here to speak with you guys, and I, I think Justin maybe promoted what we're going to do this weekend last night, but I'm going to kind of cover it again. Um, I'm going to be with you four different times, and those four different times, we're going to talk about um, the gospel in relationships. The gospel in relationships. Um, the, let me tell you why, okay? Relationships are an extremely important topic. Think about girlfriends, boyfriends, friends, parents, sisters, brothers, uh, acquaintances, people that you'd like to be friends that aren't friends, people that you that think that you're a friend and they're not your friend. I, whatever it is, these are relationships that are in your life and they're very important. Um, I don't think I have to stress this, but think about this. Um, it's, what we, it's what we think about when we're going to sleep at night. And it's for a lot of us, it's what gets us out of the bed in the morning. Relationships are essential. They're a defining, if not the defining, topic of the scripture and of life. Okay, what else are we talking about? We want to talk about these in a unique way, a different way than you're used to, and that's because we're going to talk about it biblically. Now, a lot of us get relationship advice from friends. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's over lunch, or maybe over coffee. Maybe it's um, from well-meaning parents, or 
advisors or whatever else. But what we're really going to look to is the Bible, the scripture, to see what God has to say about our relationships. Um, And this might be new for some of you. And I think here's what's really important. When we look to scripture, we can't lose sight of the gospel, the central message of the Bible. Okay, now here's what's really important. You've heard this a trillion times. But the gospel is the good news. The good news. It's not the good advice. Okay, that's important. And here's why. Because the Bible is primarily about news and not rules. That's primarily what it's about. It's primarily about God announcing what he's done through Jesus, not about what you and I do. That's primarily what the gospel is about. The gospel changes everything when we start to understand this. When we start to understand this and live this out, it changes the way and, and the how and the why of what we do. It also changes the way we think about everything, including relationships. So here's my contention that I'll talk about four different times in different ways. The gospel changes our relationships. Every one of us has relationships, and the gospel will change every single one of those relationships. Look, if I've said gospel a trillion times, you're sort of like, what does he even mean by that? I've given, I've given my intro, fear not. Okay, We're going to talk about that, what that means, the what and the so what of the gospel. Um, with this in mind, would you turn to Genesis 1 if you have a Bible? As you're turning there, I'm going to tell you what we're going to talk about and what we're not going to talk about. Okay? So I gave you the intro for the topic. That's what we're going to talk about for the next four times. But let me talk to you about what, in particular, the scripture reading, what we're going to talk about and what we're not going to talk about. So when I said Genesis 1, some of you were like, yes, this is the moment. You're mentally rubbing your hands together, your ears perked up. Sid is going to answer all of my questions about science and history and evolution and creationism. That's what he's here to do, right? That's what this this retreat is. Look, I I love you. I'm not going to do that, okay? I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's what the text is talking about. The text is really not about that debate. Okay, that debate is important. It's important to think about history. It's important to think about science. It's important to figure out whether you're a zapper or an oozer. Whatever it is, okay, it's important. But that's not really what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are primarily about. Okay? It's not, it's not a bad idea to ask questions about that. Come talk to me afterwards if you want to talk to me about evolution and creationism. If you want to talk about science and history. Um, talk to your youth minister about that. Um, I think it's a really good conversation to have, but that's really not what we're going to focus on. So that's not what we're going to talk about. Uh, let me just put it this way. I do think Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are both historical and scientific. In fact, they define the terms of science and history. Okay? We'll stop there. What I'm going to talk about is who God is and who we are. Who God is and who we are. Our passage this evening is fundamentally about relationships Relationships between, this is amazing, within God, between God and humankind, between human beings, uh, within ourselves, and then between humankind and creation. Lots of relationships going on in this passage. Um, So with that in mind, would you go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. So I have this thing that I do in RUF where we stand for the reading of scripture. It honors the word of God. So if you would stand, um, it also gets our minds back into it. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. I'm reading out the English Standard Version translation. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree that is seed and is fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Friends, it's easier for the heavens and the earth to pass away than for one letter, one letter of the word of God to become void. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we thank you for this time together that we get to open up your word and sit at your feet to listen, to hear what you'd have to teach us, even from the very beginning of your scripture. Lord, you have a message, and you have a message about who we are and who you are and how we're made and what it means for the way that we live our lives. And I pray, Father, that this would get concrete, that this would get hands and feet for our lives, that you would change us. Lord, that you'd help us to set aside what happened at dinner, what happened on the ropes course, what happened during the day. Uh, help us to set aside dodgeball to come, and help us to sit at your feet and wonder. Help us to sit at your feet and know that you are God, to rest. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that you'd get me out of the way, and that you would shine brightly, and that you'd warm our hearts and our minds and our hands and our feet. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, you're going to have to bear with my voice. It's a little bit, I know it, it sounds a little bit sexy right now, deep, you know, like... Very white, you know, deep, you know, beautiful bass. Um, but you have to bear with this. It's a little bit, I've got a little bit of a cold. Uh, the family passed it around a couple times. This is my second round. So here we go. Um, so there are times when I think in my life that I've grown older and wiser. There are these times when I think about, like, the relational issues I dealt with when I was younger. And I think, really? I struggled with that? Look where I am now. But it's amazing. God, in his incredible mercy, has given me RUF staff training twice a year to teach me that I'm older and wiser, maybe, but I'm not a jerk, because I understand exactly how hard and difficult relationships are. Let me explain. Twice a year, I go to Atlanta or Dallas, and I meet with 130-so campus ministers from all over the country. We meet for a week, and we, we study the Bible together. We talk shop about ministry. We talk about students. We talk about programs. We talk about everything. And a lot of it's learning more and more about the Bible. And I, there's plenty for me to learn. Trust me. Anyway, on paper, this should be like the most wonderful time ever. Right? There's these people that understand me. Five days and five nights with 130 people that do the same job I do. Love Jesus like I love him dislike people who think we only work nine months a year? Look, don't believe the lies, okay? That's not true. Okay, anyway. I need some RUF. Come on. Anyway, there, this is sort of like, there are people who are doing that. These are all people that should be 
kind of just know me and speak my love language, right? This is, should be the, this should be the time where I feel comfort. And they're fine. Like last week, these classes where we kind of talk about ministry and theology, and those are fine. But the time that really starts to kill us is when we get down to the lobby and we have to go get lunch. Look, I've never felt so alone in a crowd of people in my entire life than I do every, twice a year waiting for someone to ask me to go to lunch. I mean, I, all of us are grown adults, most of us over 30 with kids, we have master's degrees, but it's like a middle school dance recreated. Honestly, there are two circles of people, I, I kid you not, there's girls and there's guys, and there's like going between the two circles, you know the scene, it's like, you know, it's like risking life or death and capture the flag. You don't go into enemy territory, you can't ask for dances, you can't ask for like help, it's amazing, you know, you, you sit there and one guy goes over there and you go... Is he going to come back? Are, we sh- are you sure? I don't know. I mean, he might ask somebody, and then he might never get out of the circle. You know, because he had to, like, push his way into the circle and ask that one girl on the other end and then push his way back out with her. Anyway, maybe you haven't done the middle school dance thing in a while, but that's how it works. Anyway, in the hotel lobby, that's exactly how it feels. There are groups of people, and you're desperately waiting someone to ask you to dance, ask you to lunch, okay? And then when someone asks you, you're just like, man, that was just out of pity. So it's never satisfying. And here's my instinct in those moments. Again, I'm 31, balding, older, okay? Losing, gaining weight. That's, this is what bothers me. And there's these moments where I just feel like I'm a middle school girl. In these moments, I just feel awful. And here's what I do. My, everything in me wants to run back to my hotel room and watch The Price is Right. It just does. That's what I want to do. I want to sit down and watch The Price is Right. That's what I want to do. Or I want to justify my existence as like an awesome lunch partner by saying all the right things in all the right ways. And I become sort of like borderline codependent. Like my whole worth hinges on this person's thought of me. I hear myself like in my audience gushing about college football and using southern slang. I don't know if you guys know the southeastern slang, but like everyone says when they like, they're like kind of in a, ba- in a wonderful situation, it feels like good night covers everything. Good night. And they say stuff like, you scare the dickens out of me. I mean, I don't even know what that means. Is that Charles Dickens? I, I don't get it. But I, so I find myself saying that, and I'm just saying, look, that southeastern slang, RUF is very southeastern. If you don't get that, good. Don't use it in Albuquerque, because you'll fail miserably. And I, this, this, this time, every, this four times I get to talk to you is not about giving you social cues. Don't use that one, okay? That's terrible. At RUF training, okay, I remember that, look, I'm 31, I have a wife, I have twin babies, but relationships are hard for me. Because they're hard for everybody. Relationships are hard for me because they're hard for everybody. We've all had that moment where we opened up that vulnerable part of ourselves and it was greeted with this combination of disgust and boredom. Right? We've just that one moment of not being well, well loved, not being loved well enough, is enough to make us want to run to isolation or to run to codependence, to become sort of, sort of mini-me version of a person that we admire. Genesis 1, our passage, speaks into this relational hurt and frustration that all of us feel. Okay? It speaks into that, and it speaks into it beautifully. Genesis 1 is the foundation of what Jesus calls the great commandments. That is, love God with everything you've got, and love those people as if they were you. Simply, Genesis 1, chapters, uh, verses 26-31 through 31 says this. We're made to relate 
We're made to relate in love. Therefore, love God and love other people. It's that simple. That's what this whole passage is talking about. We're made to relate. Therefore, relate to other people and to God in love. Let's look how this plays out in the scripture with me. If you look down at Genesis 1 with me. Verses 1 through 26 through 27, we see God created human beings in his image. Verses 26 through 30, we see God created human beings in and for relationships. Verse 31, we see that God created human beings, and they were very good. Okay? So again, God's doing a lot of creating here. He's creating human beings in his image. He's creating them in and for relationships, and he's creating them very good. Those are the three points that we're going to talk about. Let's start with verse 26. Briefly. Simply, God created humankind in his image. That might not be a profound truth to you, but think about it this way. Think about the context. This was the sixth day of creation. This was the sixth movement of the symphony of bringing everything out of nothing. This was God creating the heavens, the earth, the sea, the sun, the plants. And then earlier on the sixth day, God had created the animals. When I, when I like, picture creation, I don't know. I didn't grow up in the church. Um, I became a Christian in college. That's part of why I do college ministry. But so when I grew up reading this thing called The Far Side, it's like a cartoon, Gary Larson. Some of you maybe know it, maybe you don't. It's really odd. Um, he has this really wonderful picture of creation where, uh, which is totally unbiblical. It's got God with like a huge beard and bathrobe, you know, that whole thing. And he he's, takes Play-Doh in his hand and he's rubbing it together. And he's like making this tube of Play-Doh. Like a little like like little length of it, and he goes and, and he's and he's creating snakes, and he goes, boy, this is so easy. This creation thing is so easy. Okay, um, that's not what creation is like. Creation is not out of Plato, and it's not like just rolling things into existence. God is speaking things into existence, and that's super important, and that makes it all the more special when he when he faces human beings, man and woman, and he breathes life into them. And we don't see this up close, but we know that God doesn't create human beings like everything else. He creates them in his own image to reflect his eternal and holy character. And look, this should be a moment where we jump out of our seats and worship. But because we live in the age we live in, some of us feel a lot of doubt about this. I mean, some of you are asking mentally, look, I've read the Bible, Sid. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they're different, seemingly different creation accounts. One has this version in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where, you know, this, this, it's the sixth day and it's in context. And then Genesis, 20, Genesis 2 has this one where there's dirt and there's breath and there's going to sleep and a rib pulled out. What's going on? Why are they so different? I think this seeming contradiction is actually called, as a literary technique the Bible uses, called, um, it's called literary overlap. Literary overlap. Okay? So bear with me here. Some assume that Genesis 1 and 2 is chronological. Maybe some of you grew up thinking that. Genesis 1 happens, that's, that's the events of the history, and then the next event in history and sequence is Genesis 2. That's not actually what happens. They're actually just the same story told from different angles of approach. They aren't contradictory. They're not against each other. They're complementary. They work with each other. Does that make sense to everybody? Are we following? Are we tracking? Um, basically, Genesis 2 is focusing its attention on that sixth day, on that one moment where God creates human beings. 
and it's focusing Genesis 1, 26, and 27. Genesis 2 is taking those verses and sort of zooming in. Let me give you an analogy. I'm, I, like, by the way, you'll figure this out. I'm like the king of analogies. So like all I do. Um, it's sort of like watching professional football. It's a good time of year to do that. Um, if I've already lost you, I, I apologize. I know some of you aren't sports people. Uh, I will try to throw in other kinds of metaphors, I promise. Um, anyway, so have you ever seen it televised, right? Where when you see a play televised in professional football, it's, it's televised from a bunch of different camera angles. So take one play that's very significant, like a, uh, a game-winning touchdown. And imagine two specific camera shots. We have the Genesis 1 camera shot, which is like the blimp view, thousands of feet above. Okay? So like the, the touchdown is thousands from thousands of feet above. Then you have the Genesis 2 view, which is like the helmet cam, helmet camera version. Right? So it's like blow by blow, inch by inch, grains of grass you can see, very close, and you're only a, feet, a few feet from the action of the ball crossing the plane. This is exactly what's going on in this passage. And this evening what we're going to do is, we're, Genesis 1 is that blimp view. We're going to look at the blimp view. Okay? So I'm not going to get into the mechanics of how God created man. I'm going to talk to you about why he created man in the way he did. But another time, maybe you can look at Genesis 2, and maybe you can get taught to you about the helmet camera version. Is that clear to everybody? Okay. I just want to know you're awake at this point, guys. <laughs> okay? Um, all right. So God says, let us create man in our image. But what does that even mean? Look, you guys have probably heard, made in the image of God. You've heard all this stuff before. Genesis 1, maybe you've heard before. But what does it mean, Sid? Like, what are you talking about? And I could do like a whole sermon series on the different attributes of God that we've inherited through creation. We could detail how human beings reflect God's attributes, his, his rationality, his love, his willpower, his imagination. But I want to, again, dwell on what the passage dwells on. Here's what the passage dwells on, and this is one important aspect. God is both a he and a we. God is both a he and a we. What do I mean by that? Let's look at verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. This is amazing. In this verse, we glimpse into a true mystery. The Trinity. The Trinity. Look, I had this grad, uh, graduate school professor, I had him with Justin. And he told me, look, Sid, uh, if you speak for more than 15 minutes on the Trinity you will lose your job. Because you will inevitably commit some sort of heresy and you will get kicked out of your denomination and get kicked out of the ministry. So let me keep this very, very short for you, okay? I'm not going to go into all the details of the Trinity. God is one substance, one being, and three persons. So this is what it means. His decisions to create, and this action of creation, all right, were unanimous decisions, unanimous actions among three different persons. Among the Father, among the Son, and among the Holy Spirit. God is a community, and he works by perfect committee. According to John, a writer in the New Testament, there exists among these persons a perfect love. God is a perfectly social being at his essence. Before creation even happens, he's social. And this is really important. God did not create the heavens and the earth because he needed someone to love him. He didn't create the heavens and the earth because he needed us to love him. God had perfect love among the persons of the Trinity. It was actually out of the overflow of that love that creation happened. 
It wasn't because he needed the birds to tweet for him. He had perfect praise within himself. And it was actually because it was so perfect that it went abundantly and it overspilled into creation. That's super important. And here's the takeaway. Look, you're going, Sid, that's awesome. You've talked to me about, you've not talked to me about science. You've not talked to me about how men are made. And you've not talked to me about the Trinity. But here's the takeaway of why I've been talking about this at all. If God is a social community, if God is a perfect social community, and we're made in his image, what does that mean about us? We're social. We're created socially. And we're community-oriented beings. Is everyone following that? If we're made in his image, and he's he's a community, then we're a community. We're built for community. By our very design, we long for relationships. We desire to love and to be loved perfectly, just like the Trinity has that love perfection, in perfection. And this is why, before the entrance of sin, before evil even happened, it came on the scene, in Genesis 2, verse 18, God says of Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And this verse, Genesis 2, verse 18, is not actually just about marriage. I know you guys think, okay, that's what you hear at every marriage service. But it's also about friends and family and church and even bowling. That's what this is about. It's about being built for community. And here's what it tells us. Our longing is not the problem. Our relationships are not the problem. So going ahead and stopping caring about other people and stop being cared for is not the solution. What is the solution? Before I get there, I want to say this. We are needy. We are dependent. We need relationships. Because we are made in the image of a God who has perfect relationships. Look, you can go to only drive through windows. You can only use automatic teller machines, ATMs. You can do all your shopping online. But let's face it, you can't get around the fact that isolation just makes us really weird. Okay? True isolation, true isolation creates a man who, who sends bombs in the mail. The Unabomber, does anyone know that? Guys like the hood and the glasses. Anyway, you wrote a really long, incoherent manifesto. Um, anyway, true isolation does not create Henry David Thoreau and an appreciation of nature in Walden. Because let's be honest, Thoreau was never truly isolated, whereas the Unabomber, he had that in space. He was truly isolated. And look what happened. He went against the way he was made. This is the, this is the application. After this is done, walk across the room and talk to somebody. Get to know them. Get to know them. Get curious about them. Besides what church they're from, what school they go to, besides you know, where they're from, like are they from New Mexico, are they from Albuquerque, across this room is someone made for you. Someone made for community just like you are, just like I am. And everybody, every person is important. That's what this tells us. Being created in the image of God is the reason that everybody's important. And we're all made to appreciate that importance. Alright, so verses 26 and 27, God made us in his collective image. God is a we, and this makes us each naturally long to be more than a me. God's a we, and it makes us naturally long to be more than a me. We're made for relationships with our creator God. The chief blessing that God gives us is his presence to be with us. And here's the deal, like when you look at the Garden of Eden, what was awesome with the Garden of Eden was not all the free food and the nakedness. 
That wasn't what was awesome about the Garden of Eden. It was walking in the cool of the day with the Lord. That's what was amazing about Eden. Okay? And we were made not just to walk with God, but with other people, with other human beings. God created us in and for relationships. And look at verse 27's emphasis. Male and female, God, he created them. Male and female. From the beginning, we were made plural. Isn't that amazing? We were made plural from the beginning. Not a single person, not a single gender. We were made to embrace the other and not just the self. We were made to appreciate and not fear different genders. We were made to appreciate what each gender reflects about God and his character. Yet this passage puts our need for God and other people, male and female, in a greater context of work. Again, look, this is before the fall, this is before evil came into the world, and yet God has projects for human beings. He has work for them to do, right? Verse 26 and then verses 28 through 30 tell us what we're called to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, that's called the creation mandate. Okay? We are to have families to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And we're to tame the earth. We're to subdue it. We're to cultivate wilderness into gardens. That's our calling from the very beginning. Cultural mandate. So why is this important? Again, Sid, that's awesome. You tell me a lot of details about Genesis. I get it. But why is that important? God is telling us that relationships are central to everything. Everything. Our God-given work is all about relationships. People are more than bad partners and group projects. Okay? They're, ba- they're, they're better than mandatory slackers. Okay? You know, like, every lab group has this, right? The person that brings the good snacks. Ah, oh, I love that person. And you have the person that, like, you know just sits there and says, I'll take notes, which means they're not going to do anything. And then you have the person that does basically all of the work. And then you have that person that doesn't even show up to the lab group meetings. Isn't that awesome? Um, look, like when you think through those scenarios, it's all about loving your fellow presenters and lab partners and learning how to relate to the thing behind the PowerPoint presentation that you give before the class. Learn to, to deal with the raw material of creation, the thing in the Petri dish and not the finished product of the lab report. And look, this text reminds people like me, and I've got more problems than a math book, people. Look, it reminds me that I've got to stop using my work as a shield. I've got to stop protecting and hiding myself from other people because I'm busy. My measures of successful work are how well I relate to people. How well I relate to people and to creation. That's what the measuring stick is that's put in Genesis 1. In other words, true free love and truly being green, those are concepts that didn't start in the 60s and in the knots, 2000s. Those started way back in the garden. Okay? True free love and truly being green started way back in the garden. So here's the final truth. Let's look at verse 31. At creation, human relationships, along with everything else, were very good. Very good. Humankind's connections to God, to each other, to ourselves, they're all amazing. Amazing. And this is actually extremely hard for us to see. And this sermon, this time, this talk, might feel extremely offensive to a lot of you. Because we don't like looking at hurt. We don't like looking at wounds. We don't like looking at sin. 
what we're doing and what we're being sinned against. We don't like doing that. And here's why. Because we don't know what it really looks like to love and to be loved. To know and to be known. But look what Gen- this is what the portrait in Genesis of Garden Eden does. So let me flesh it out for you. It does it first in a metaphor. It says this. They were naked and they were unashamed. They were naked and they were not ashamed. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Selfishness didn't exist. There were no favorites. Everyone liked each other. Friendships weren't based on like taste in clothes or music. It wasn't based on saying the right things or being funny. The first man and woman were completely understood. They never felt judged or on the outside because there was no room for judgment and there was no outside. Everyone belonged and felt valued for who they were, not what they did. And you know what? Gifts were praised, but weaknesses were kissed. That's what the Garden of Eden was like. That's what happened before sin. But this Bible tells us, and the world tells us, that sin happened. We stopped trusting God. We told God to leave us alone. We gave him the middle finger and said, get out of here. That's what sin is. Trust left the garden. People started being ashamed of their weaknesses. People started using their gifts to beat up other people. Best friends were made. Best friends forever were made. And people got tired of trying to understand each other. Everyone suddenly felt like everyone else should make the effort in relationships. They should be the person that calls. They should be the person that invites me out. Human beings became afraid of being hurt. We became afraid of being hurt. And so we never say anything. We never do anything to show what we really care about. Because suddenly, depending on people, felt like death after Genesis 3. The fall described in Genesis 3 lingers with us this day. Our relationships are painful. They're often torn or tearing. They're often torn or tearing. People who promise to catch you in your life have dropped you. Let's be honest. That's life. It's part of life. We think that if people really get to know us, they really get to know us, they'll just run away. So many of us don't really get to know anyone, and many of us don't want to be known. Many of us run from any whiff whiff of depth at all, any deep relationships whatsoever. And many of us, when the first sign of another person's baggage, turn and run away. And look, depending on who you are and how you're made, this looks different for each person. Sometimes, for some of you, this looks like living in your bedroom. When you're not in school, all you do is sit in your computer. All you do is sit in your bed. For others of you, it means going to every party that you can possibly go to and hiding behind a solo cup. But, and I'm wrapping this up, we're made in the image of God. And that's super important. The things that we yearn for in the pits of our stomach, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, that intimacy, God honors that longing. And you know how he does it? He does it in Jesus Christ. Jesus came and died for the failures in our relationships. He died so that our failures would succeed. Paul calls us in the New Testament the ministry of reconciliation. What is reconciliation but taking failure in relationships and making it successful? That's what reconciliation is. Our failure with ourselves, with the world, with each other, and with God. Jesus died for that. For those. For our relationships. 
if you believe in Him. Jesus came to restore His people. He restore us to the God the Father. And this is the beautiful thing. This is what the Bible gets. This is what Jesus gets. This is what, what salvation is all about. You have to reconcile your relationship vertically before your horizontal relationships will work. And not surprisingly, that's the shape of a cross. If you don't have the vertical beam, you can't support the horizontal beam. If your relationship with God is not right, made by Jesus Christ, your relationship with everyone else will not be right. That's what the cross stands for. Here, let me explain it in a story. I used to teach middle school and upper school and all-boys school in Washington, D.C., a place called Bethesda, Maryland. Um, the average lot, not house price, was half a million dollars. So it was very, very wealthy. People wore coat and tie. Um, it was my first year. I was 23. I was, like, peeing my pants every time I got up in front of a class uh, because I was like, oh, my gosh, these people are, like, 18, and I'm not even that much older. But... During my first year, I was teaching a middle school class. Um, I think Justin told you I taught Latin. There's a seventh grade boy named Sam. Sam was like way different than the other students. He was non-expressive. Do you know what I mean by that? He rarely smiled or frowned, and his face was like his mouth was just like a line across. That's what he was like. He would oftentimes come to me in the hall, and he would jerk my sleeve, and then I would turn around, and he would just stand there awkwardly. Like straight at attention. And like blank, blank face. And then sometimes he would say, Hello, Mr. Druin. That was like, that was what he was, that's every day. All the time. That's what Sam was like. So I was like, man, this has to be a reason for this. So I was really eager to meet his parents. And so one day at parent-teacher conferences, I met Sam's parents. And to my surprise, they were nothing like Sam. They were totally different. Totally expressive, totally warm, totally loving. And it was during our meeting that they told me that Sam had grown up in an Eastern European orphanage. I don't know if you know anything about Soviet-style orphanages, but for the first five years of Sam's life, he was not touched, he was not held, he was not played with. He was in a crib. He was in a prison, basically. And this relational neglect made Sam cold inside. It made his heart cold. For the first 12 years of his life, he felt and showed little to no emotion because people had felt and showed him little to no emotion. I got to see this up close and personal how the love of his adopting parents changed Sam. It was slow. They hugged and they nurtured and they encouraged this kid who never hugged them back, who stood stiff as a board. But over that school year, Sam changed. He began to say hello with a slight smile after he tugged my jacket. He developed, he developed a love for silly jokes. He sent me a bunch of like random email pictures. <laughs> and he showed little to no... And still, he still would, every once in a while, every once in a while, he'd give that little grin. And I got to see his eyes. And this was amazing. His eyes started to warm as his heart started to thaw. You see, here's the deal. Sam's parents had loved him fiercely. They had loved him, they had nurtured him, they had cared for him, they encouraged him. And this love had changed Sam. It changed Sam to the point where he was able to love people like me back. I hope you understand the metaphor. This is going to happen. This is the gospel in relationships. God adopts us. We're cold and we're stiff and we're frozen inside. 
God loves us. He loves us. He encourages us. He nurtures us. He cares for us. And through His fierce love, through God's fierce love, His hugs, His encouragement, our hearts start to thaw. Our bodies start to soften. Believing in God's love for us, believing in it showed supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ, believing that truth of the gospel will change us, will help us to love other people. Just like Sam's parents loving him helped him to love other people. Look, and I've been real honest about this, relationships are painful, they're awkward, and they're a mess. Whether you want to go there or not tonight's your choice. That's the truth. But you know, I still look forward to RUF training every six months, at the end of every semester. Do you know why? Because there were the moments in the lobby, in the midst of the hard social awkwardness, the middle school dance, so to speak, where I taste and I see Jesus Christ. And this is the beautiful thing. In the midst of sitting there and looking at your feet and hoping someone will ask you to lunch, Jesus shows up. He shows up. He shows up with conversations of real depth and where people lay down their social weapons of war and embrace in the name of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, I, this, is, this is hard to hear, um, but beautiful to hear. <laughs> That you're the kind of God that takes cold and stiff people and makes them warm. Um, we need your love, Father. Um, we're tired. Uh, some of us are sick. But, Lord, we know that you work through your word preached. And you work in our hearts. And you work just like you worked in the life of Sam. And I pray, Father, that we would know what it means to love people, to be loved, to long for that, to open up our hearts for that desire again. Um, and I pray, Father, that you would reward that richly by helping us to look to your cross and to Jesus. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.